You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, it's such a blessing to get to share a message amongst fellow Lutherans. As an Air Force chaplain, I generally speak in a place where half the people don't know why I'm dressed so funny. I don't usually wear vestments, but I I do at least refuse to wear a necktie anymore. But, you know, I'm amongst family here, and that's a great blessing. So I thank you for welcoming me here today to share a word of our Lord with you. As we get started this morning, I want to share with you the text that I'm going to be preaching from. It's from our gospel lesson that Vicar read just a moment ago from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 28, but especially Jesus' words when he says, A kingdom divided itself against itself will be rent asunder, and a household divided against itself will surely fall. This is our text. Amen. To begin with today, I want to share with you first an ancient principle and then a contemporary example. Has anyone here ever heard of the ancient Chinese text called the Art of War? It's been around for many thousands of years. A very wise man, a military strategist by the name of Sun Tzu, wrote this piece, and it is still used today as a, a, the definitive strategy for how to wage war and also how not to wage war if you're trying to avoid defeat. But from Sun Tzu chapter or section number six in his piece, he writes, I should concentrate my forces while my enemy is fragmented. If we are able to unify into a single force while he is divided into ten, then we will attack him with ten times his strength. Thus we are many and the enemy is few. And if we attack his few with our many, those we engage in battle cannot hope to prevail. Now, this doesn't come from our culture. It doesn't even come from the culture of the Middle East. It comes from ancient China. Does that sound familiar, though? It's very similar to the principle that Jesus espouses in the text that we have today. Now, of course, Jesus was using it as a defense, and I'll say more to that later. But a contemporary example of this same principle we might see when, uh, well, just 10 hours after the Empire of Japan began its attack on Pearl Harbor, They attacked another location, the islands of the Philippines, defended by American and allied forces and commanded by General MacArthur, just 10 hours after Pearl Harbor. And of course, at this point, we knew the attack was coming, but the general didn't know from where. So he had his forces divided up, trying to cover the entire island of the Philippines, as if every piece of ground were as important as every other. The Japanese knew this. And they concentrated their forces, and they attacked the site that was most important. And with a smaller force, the Empire of Japan took the island of the Philippines from the United States and from the people that were native to there. And that is the same principle yet again in contemporary history just a few generations ago where this principle was put into work. But before I get too much further into this principle, narrowing down on the text, we need to look at the whole text. So give me just a few moments. This gospel text from Luke chapter 11 is all about Jesus casting out a demon. And the interesting thing to me in this is that it's seemingly instant. At a word, at a command, at just Jesus pointing his finger. He doesn't even say 
The scripture doesn't even say how Jesus carried this out. It just says the demon was cast out. In the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, with one word from Jesus, the deed was done by this immeasurably small effort from our Savior. And unlike other exorcisms that we have recorded in Luke's gospel, this time the demon doesn't have anything to say or perhaps is prevented from speech. We don't know exactly which. But in Luke 4, 34, the demon has a lot to say. That demon that Jesus casts out says, Ha! What have you to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon knows exactly where Jesus has come from, what he is there for, and this demon is terrified when he goes back to report to his master's down below. Likewise, in Luke 8, 28, this demon says, or it says, when he saw Jesus, that is the demon, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. You see, these demons know Jesus better then we know him at this point and know him better than even his disciples or anybody looking on. They take one look at this Messiah and they know that he wields the power of God. That with a word, with a command, with a point, that they're in torment and they're afraid. So we know that Jesus has this power and the power that he has over the demons is not a fluke. It's not an accident. He exercises this power again and again. The crowd knows it. We know it, of course, because we've read it in the scriptures. But what's more, the Pharisees, they too know it. Because as surely as some of them are there at this one, our text for today, some of them were there or at least heard about these other times. And just like when Jesus heals, just like when he raises the dead, it's the same as when he sends these agents of evil back to hell reporting to their masters of the thrashing that they received at the hand of the Son of God. Jesus surely has this power, as has been witnessed by everyone who's present at this passage when it takes place. But absent from the demon's shouts or screams or objections as they raise in these other exorcisms, the, demons don't, the demon doesn't have anything to say this time. And so the Pharisees, in a desperate attempt to try to save face and to keep some of the crowd on their side as they see Jesus as an enemy of theirs, they level this absurd, false accusation against Jesus. They say that by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Jesus cast out this demon. Now, of course, that the Son of God could be in leagues with the devil. We read that, and it's outrageous. For how could light have any fellowship with darkness? How can the Son of God be in leagues with the enemy of God? To us, on the face of it, it's absurd. It doesn't make any logical sense. And from our point of view, as believers in Christ and as those who proclaim his name, it's blasphemy. But I want to tell you, from the Pharisees' perspective, it's really not much better than blasphemy. For as surely as we believe in Christ and we understand that when Jesus acts, he acts as an agent in the name of God the Father, anybody looking on should have been able to tell the same thing. 
It should have been obvious to them. For just as surely when Jesus heals, he's acting in the name of God. When Jesus raises the dead, he's acting in the name of God, bringing about good for those that he raises and the families that he reunites. So just as surely when Jesus sends one of Satan's foot soldiers back to him and away from the person that he was oppressing, Jesus acts as an agent of Almighty God. It's obvious to us, and it should have been obvious to them. It goes without saying, but Jesus says it anyway. The kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, I wouldn't want to be one of those demons when the weight of the kingdom of God came crashing down and crushing their heads. Nor would I want to be one of the Pharisees when the weight of the kingdom of God comes crashing down on them and their realization of who they've been opposing this whole time. But what a great blessing it is to be one who is blessed by the coming of the kingdom of God, as we here all enjoy. You know, it should be clear to anyone that Satan would not have any interest and would not be willing to divide his forces. We read it in Sun Tzu in that ancient Chinese text. We see what dividing one's forces did at the islands of the Philippines for General MacArthur and our American forces. Jesus even points out this principle in our gospel text, that a kingdom divided will surely be laid to waste, and that a divided household cannot help but fall. From Jesus' statement here, this one that he offered in his own defense at this crazy accusation against him, I want to jump off and expand into application that we can see in the world around us. You know, of course, there's much more in this text that we can unpack. You know, sometimes I, I like to read the ancient, uh, or not the ancient, but the old-time Lutheran theologians like C.F.W. Walther, the uh, the first pastor and uh, one of the early presidents, uh, or the early pastors, the first president of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And, you know, he said the, the 45 minutes that we spend listening to God's Word on Sunday mornings, that should be the most important 45 minutes of the week. Well, even if I took that whole 45 minutes that Walther talked about, I couldn't address everything in this text. I promise to not preach for 45 minutes. But if you'll give me your attention for about another 10 to 12, I hope to make it a blessing for you. Application to the world around us. Jesus is talking about divisions. Divisions where they should be unity. A house should be one foundation. A people should be united. A kingdom should be one. And yet, this is a world full of divisions. A world full of warfare. Now, amongst ourselves, the human race is most certainly divided. Can anyone point to or recall or remember or anyone in all of history remember a time when human beings were truly at peace, when kingdom did not rise up against kingdom and nation rise up against nation, and there was no conflict and no war? There has simply never been a time in human history that someone was not in conflict with someone else. From the first generation, Cain and Abel, Brother rose up against brother. And for every, every generation since, it has been the same. This is a world defined by conflict and warfare. And now in our own country, going on 13 years of ongoing deployments to wartime, sending troops to Iraq and Afghanistan, 13 years this has been going on. Now, of course, at some point we will bring the troops back, but the war has by no means shown any sign of ending. And now, of course, we're talking about the hostilities in Syria 
and even the possibility of deploying troops to the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea. This is a world defined by division and by warfare. You know, around a century ago, people had gotten so smart and so sure of themselves and so confident in human ingenuity and the possibilities of the future that they actually believed there was a time when human beings, through knowledge, through science, through progress, could stop fighting each other. And we could all get along and there would be this utopia, this heaven on earth. That, That idea is more than 100 years old. And we haven't gotten any closer to it. Can anyone actually think that we will reach such a, such a time or such a place through our own effort? I don't think so. Even Jesus proclaims elsewhere, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. This is a world of division. And a world at war in this way will be laid waste, as Jesus says. Divided thus, we cannot stand. That's bad enough. But there is a worse form of division, a worse model of warfare. And that is the warfare that takes place within each and every one of us at war within our very selves. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. See, Paul knows this struggle all too well. He desires to do the good that he knows in his mind and in his spirit, but it's the evil that he does. And this is Paul we're talking about. St. Paul, the apostle, he knows it. We know it as well. And he goes on to describe the effect of the, of living with this internal division of self, this internal warfare that he fights daily, the struggle between action and will, the desire to do right, and the, the continuing pattern of doing what is wrong. Paul likens this to living in a body of death. What a terrible image. We all know that warfare brings destruction and death, but a war within us that brings a body of death, that is a grim picture of the human condition. And so this war within rages on. And divided thus, we cannot stand. But you know, that's the the, the worser form of warfare. The warfare amongst the world, among nations, that's bad enough. The war that wages on within us, that's worse. But the worst warfare, the worst division that takes place is the division between us and our Maker. The division between us and the very God. Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, Not even one. And so the psalmist of ancient times, relying on the revelation given to him by the Holy Spirit, knows that the heart of God looks upon us and sees a people at war with him, at division at him, at odds with him. And the universe and all that there is belongs to God, for he made it. And yet we, as the universe's inhabitants and the creatures of God, find ourselves at odds with him. 
And these words paint the darkest picture possible of the human soul. Turned away from God's will, despising God's word, ignoring God's command and determined to hide from God's face, hiding behind the pathetic fig leaves we sow for ourselves as if those would shield us from God's gaze. That is a sad human condition. This is by far the worst form of warfare and the worst division that can be. And thus divided from God our Maker, we can by no means stand. Earlier in our passage, I cited that that word from St. Paul where he talked about the body of death. Here's his whole statement, and it leads me into the conclusion. Who will deliver me, Paul says, from this body of death? And the answer, if we're seeking deliverance from this warfare, from this division, from this world defined by death and division and warfare, this body defined by division and internal warfare, and indeed our division from God our Father and warfare with Him. If we are seeking one to deliver us from this division, the division comes and the deliverance comes by one who is undivided. In the whole scripture, in all of history, there is only one individual who can claim to be one with God. That is, to have perfect unity with the Maker, to be perfectly united with the Father in heaven. Now, of course, Abraham, it says, trusted God. Enoch, the scripture says, walked with God. King David, it even says, was close to the heart of God. And these are all great things. They are all great blessings, but it is only Jesus who can claim and who the scriptures proclaim who is truly ever one with God. Of course, we know this well. I could spend the rest of this morning citing passage after passage, narrative after narrative, and scripture after scripture that points to us that Jesus, in fact, was with God, and Jesus was one with God, and Jesus is God. But perhaps it's not any clearer given than in John 17 when Jesus prays for his disciples and also prays for us. When Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You know, in a world talking about divisions and warfare and people at odds with each other and us being at odds with ourselves and definitely us being at odds with God. Talking about divisions. A kingdom will certainly be laid to waste if it is divided against itself and a house divided against itself shall surely fall. But in one statement, Jesus declares that all divisions are null and void. For surely... If Jesus prays that we may all be one, and we know that Jesus and the Father are truly one, then not only now are we one with each other, one with ourselves, and no longer at struggle, but now through Christ we are one with God. And if Jesus prays it, Amen, Amen. In the words of our catechism, it must be so. Thanks be to God, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has made us one with him, declared our divisions null and void, and declared us to be one with God. 
To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 9.15, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 10.45 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 8.30 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 9.30 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.